0: We are right in the thick of our class series on the life of Jesus. Who is Jesus really? Jesus is doing things on a bigger, grander scale now. And it's getting harder and harder for the religious elite to deny that he is the Messiah. And Jesus is shifting too. At the end of last week's class, he met a Gentile, Syrophoenician woman who pushed back on his insistence that he's only been sent to the Israelites. She showed him that the Gentiles can have as much faith as the Jews. And she demanded God's healing for the Gentiles too. It was an amazing exchange. Now, sometime after this, the dust apparently settles enough from the death of John the Baptist that Jesus can return from Syrophoenicia to Galilee. He travels to the south part of Galilee, back to the Decapolis. I wonder if he like visits with the man from Gadara that he healed just a few weeks earlier. Probably. Anyway, this time the people bring Jesus a deaf man who can only speak with great difficulty and they beg Jesus to lay his hand on him. So Jesus takes the man aside a little bit away from the crowd and puts his fingers in the man's ears. And then he spits and touches the man's tongue. And Jesus looks up to heaven and groans and says to the man, open completely up. And immediately the man's Ears are opened and he can speak plainly. The crowd cannot believe it. Who is this guy who can open the ears of the deaf and the tongues of the mute? This particular story is only in the Gospel of Mark and is one of the places Mark puts in the bit about Jesus telling everyone to keep it a secret. Keeping the secret that Jesus is the Messiah is a central literary device Mark uses in his gospel, and it's pretty certainly not something Jesus actually says. The very next thing in Matthew and Mark is a story about Jesus being followed around by huge crowds. They're listening to him speak. They don't even want to take a break to eat. For three days, they have nothing to eat, and Jesus is afraid that people are going to start collapsing for lack of food. They're in a remote place. So Jesus asked the disciples how much bread they have on hand. And those disciples, they've only got seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. So Jesus takes the loaves, gives thanks and starts breaking the food into pieces for the disciples to distribute among the people. They feed 4,000 people and have seven baskets full of pieces after everyone has eaten their fill. So if you think you're having deja vu, (laughs) you are right. We just read a very similar story about Jesus feeding 5,000 people in a similar way. And that should be a red flag to you whenever we see repeated stories very close together, we should pause and look to see if they are the beginning and ending brackets of a chiasm. A chiasm is a passage arranged by the author so that the beginning sequence of events is mirrored by the ending sequence of events with a twist in the meaning in the second half. The events frame and emphasize a central point. By tracking the chiasm to its center, we are able to pinpoint the main point and understand its significance. Now, an author goes to a lot of trouble to set up a chiasm, so any point that he's making must be very important indeed. It's called a chiasm because the arrangement suggests an X shape and the letter that looks like an X in Greek is the letter chi. So let's look and see if we've got a chiasm on our hands here. We know the beginning must be the feeding of the 5,000 and the end must be the feeding of the 4,000. But we've got some important choices to make here. Notice that the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels, even in John, while the feeding of the 4,000 is only in Matthew and Mark. Therefore, if we're looking for Uh, the chiasm for the author who set this up as a chiasm, we cannot use the sequence of events in Luke or John because they've obviously broken up the chiasm and omitted bits as they've copied the story in. But we should, we we're left with, you know, Matthew and Mark here. Should we track Matthew's version of events or Mark's version of events? Well, If you compare the text, there is one difference between the two accounts. Mark has that last story we just read about healing the deaf mute man um, and all the detail around that story. Whereas Matthew just sticks in this like little brief mention that Jesus heals many people and many people marvel at him. So I'm kind of leaning towards using Mark's more robust version. We also know that Mark's version is the earliest and that Matthew copies off of Mark. And we also know that Mark loves to use chiasms in his writing. So I'm kind of thinking Mark may have been the originator of this particular chiasm. It may not make a difference, but it might. So let's go with Mark's version. First, let's make sure it's a chiasm and make sure we've got the general shape right. And then we can go back and analyze it to see what it's telling us. After the feeding of the 4, 000, uh, the 5,000, the next thing that happens in Mark is that Jesus walks on water and the wind calms when he gets in the boat. The people beg him to let the sick just touch the edge of his garment and all who do are healed. Then there's the scene where the Pharisees accuse the disciples of being unclean because they don't ritually wash their hands before eating. And Jesus jumps all over the Pharisees for being hypocrites, telling them they were they are following all the rules to be ritually clean, but are failing to actually be clean by following God's overarching commands like caring for their aging parents. Then Jesus makes what looks to be the central statement. What goes into you from the outside is not what makes you unclean. It is what is in your heart that matters. Now that would make since as the center of the chiasm it's a huge point so let's see if the rest of the sequence works the next story is the one about the Syrophoenician woman she's the one who tells Jesus that even the puppies under the table eat the crumbs the children's drop and because of her faith Jesus heals her daughter How would that correlate with the story of the disciples being accused of being unclean? For this to be a valid chiasm, the story of the Gentile woman must be some sort of mirror of the story of the disciples, but with a twist as a result of the central statement. Let's think about this. The disciples are following God's commands and are literally following Jesus around, but are accused of being unclean by the Pharisees, who are ritually clean, but inside are like whitewashed tombs. They're righteous looking on the outside, but are full of filth on the inside. The Gentile woman is the mirror image. As a Gentile, she is by definition completely unclean, you know, to the Jews. Jesus himself won't even speak to her at first. And yet, on the inside, she has faith. She believes. And Jesus declares her completely acceptable. Jesus even cleanses her daughter. This woman and her daughter are portrayed as being clean inside and out. No whitewashed tombs and no rituals required. Only faith. Only what was in this woman's heart. That totally works, doesn't it? Next is the healing of the deaf mute. That should pair up with Jesus walking on water. Well, One similarity I see right off the bat is that both are Messiah sorts of events. In the first one, even the wind calms down when Jesus gets in the boat. Definitely Messiah stuff. That's a similarity. But what are the differences between the two events? How is the second event affected by the central point of the chiasm? We'll think about this in our breakout groups today. There is tremendous richness in the juxtaposition of these two passages. So leaving that pair aside for our breakout groups to ponder, let's back off and look at the bigger picture. Let's look at the overall differences between the first half of the chiasm and the second half. One difference is the geography. In the first two events, Jesus is traveling between locations in Capernaum where he lives and a remote area that is still presumably still in Galilee. And then he goes to Bethsaida on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. These are all close together. They're all Jewish locations. But in the second half, Jesus travels from Syrophoenicia, a Gentile area, to the Decapolis Another Gentile area. There is definitely an emphasis on the healing of the Gentiles in the second half of the chiasm. Very interesting. So what about the beginning and ending events? The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. How are they changed by what is in the center of the chiasm? What are the differences here? Well, in the first story, the disciples collect 12 baskets full of leftovers. Twelve. What does that bring to mind? The disciples. That's the number of disciples. And in the last story, they collect seven baskets full of leftovers. Seven in throughout scripture being the number of wholeness or perfection, wholeness, in particularly, you know, it it when when Jesus heals, he brings you to wholeness. That the number seven would, from a scriptural point of view, definitely be associated with Jesus. In the feeding of the five thousand at the beginning, Jesus is concerned about the mental health and well-being of the twelve. Now, Mark doesn't call them disciples there; he calls them apostles. Apostles means those sent rather than disciples, which means those following. Mark's version has Jesus withdrawing to this remote place out of concern that the apostles, those sent, are not getting enough rest. And in the first story, Mark emphasizes the 12 apostles. But in the last story, the, the story of the 4,000, Mark goes back to calling them disciples, disciples further highlighting Jesus. So if we put this all together, we see the focus shifting from the 12 apostles and from the Jews to an emphasis that there is no clean versus unclean distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It is not what you were born as or even whether you are Jewish or pagan. It is what is in your heart that matters to God. The shift from the Jewish apostles to Jesus in this chiasm is a huge tectonic shift in thinking. The apostles are not less. It's that Jesus is more. This is a big deal, which, of course, is why Mark goes to the trouble to set it up as a chiasm. The Pharisees, of course, missed the point of all of this, they follow Jesus to a place called Dalmanutha, which is probably on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of in the middle near where Mary Magdalene is from. And the Pharisees keep pestering Jesus for a miracle. what they call a sign or a wonder from heaven. As if what he's already done, like what he's just done in plain sight is not enough for them. And this is something for us to remember. If someone does not already see God's miracles, then it really won't matter how big or obvious the miracle is. They will never believe it. Their heart must be open to God first. Mark says, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and sighs deeply and says, why do you keep asking for a sign? There is not going to be a sign for this generation. The word generation means a lot of things. It can mean race or family. It can especially means across a period of time, just as it means in English. But the Greek can also mean any group of people who share characteristics. So I think Jesus tends to use the word um, contextually. He tends to use the word the way we would use the word folks. He's saying, why do you folks keep asking for a sign? You know, the Pharisees are not going to get a sign. (laughs) And in this context, I think Jesus is saying there's never going to be a sign that's sufficient for people like this, meaning the scribes and Pharisees. Those who have signs all around them and refuse to see them. So let's double check Matthew and Luke's versions to see what they say. In Matthew, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, You are evil and adulterous people. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. For three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh repented when they saw the sign of Jonah three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, and they will stand up at the judgment with you and say, you saw a sign greater than that of Jonah. Now, it seems to me that Matthew may have, in hindsight, added the three day and three nights part, um, which would refer to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which actually has not happened at this point in the story, chronologically, but even if he did, stick that in, I think the words of Jesus still stand up. Jesus is saying that the signs he has already given his very presence is a far greater sign than that of Jonah. And Jonah caused an entire metropolitan city of idol worshipers to repent. So those are pretty scathing words for the scribes and Pharisees. At this point, Jesus and his disciples are just arriving at Magdala, somewhere on the western shore of Galilee, and the disciples suddenly realize they forgot to bring any bread for dinner. Oops, this is a big faux pas. It is their job to make sure Jesus and his band of leaders are fed and cared for. Jesus says, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the disciples say, oh, shoot, he noticed we don't have any bread. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? You have so little faith. Don't you remember feeding 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread? Don't you remember how many baskets full of leftovers you gathered? Or feeding the 4,000 people and how many baskets you gathered after that? How can you be so obtuse? I'm not talking to you about forgetting our lunch. The leaven I'm trying to warn you about is the influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Finally, the disciples get their heads turned around and understand what Jesus is saying. Poor Jesus. At this point, it's pretty obvious that he knows this is going to end in his death and that these disciples are going to be left on their own. And so far, they don't seem to have a clue about anything he said. Well, the disciples and Jesus moved north to Bethsaida. It is here we have the second story about Jesus healing someone with spit. The story is only in Mark. The people bring a blind man to Jesus for healing. Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him a little ways out of town. He spits on the blind man's eyes and lays his hands on him. Then he asks the man, can you see anything? And the man says, well, sort of. I can see people. They look like trees walking around. So I gather from this that that this man used to be able to see. He knows what trees look like. So Jesus lays his hands on him again. And this time the man can see everything clearly. I think it is so interesting. Number one, that Jesus spits on him like he spit on the deaf mute man just a bit ago. Two, that both times Jesus takes the men a little away from the crowds. Three, that this time it takes Jesus twice, two times to heal the man completely. And four, that these two stories only appear in Mark and are very close together. All that makes me wonder if Mark has linked these stories on purpose. Are they a mini chiasm? And if so, what event are they framing? Well, if you go back and look, the events they frame are the feeding of the 4,000, the Pharisees asking for a sign and Jesus refusing, and Jesus warning to beware the yeast of the Pharisees. The center seems to be about signs. Miracles, and that we need to regard them differently than the Pharisees do. So what might be the significance of the feeding of the 4,000? Well, for one thing, it was a huge miracle, a huge sign. But on closer examination, that miracle happened after Jesus had spoken to the crowd and they listened for three days, speaking and hearing. That is a direct link to the miracle of healing the man who could neither speak nor hear. Very cool. So now we know what to look for in the next bit. It should be basically the same kind of deal. When Jesus warns the disciples to be wary of the influence of the Pharisees, we need to ask, well, What is the influence they're having? Well, they're important leaders among the people, and they are flat out denying the miracles that are performed right in front of them. They are actively refusing to see and understand. And that links this part of the story directly to the healing of the man who cannot see. So how cool is that? a mini chiasm about hearing and seeing God's signs. There's a lot more we could unpack here about why Jesus takes the two men away from the crowds and why it takes Jesus two times to heal the blind men. But I'll have to leave that for you to ponder on your own. This whole mini chiasm, however, does remind me strongly of the prophecy from Isaiah 6 that Jesus quoted back in Matthew 13. The disciples had just asked why he taught in parables. And Jesus said, these people's hearts have become thick-skinned. They barely hear with their ears and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to me and I would heal them. This seems to be a really, really big theme with God in the Hebrew Bible and with Jesus. Now, God has sent Jesus to bring healing to us. We have been given spiritual eyes and ears. We have been given physical eyes and ears. The choice is ours. So at this point, Jesus and his disciples head way up north, all the way to Caesarea Philippi, nearly halfway to Damascus. I have no idea why they go so far. This is one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. The town was previously named Panias after the ancient god Pan. Now Pan is one of the most ancient of the Greek gods, and interestingly enough, he is the god of shepherds. He was typically worshipped in remote, rural spots and often in caves, and that's exactly what Caesarea Philippi used to be in the centuries before Jesus' time, an ancient, rural, out-of-the-way place. There's even a cave dedicated to Pan there. Here's a picture of it nowadays. You can see the huge cavern on the left, and underneath it, you can see the headwaters of the Jordan River. You can see how dramatic the juxtaposition is between the headwaters of the Jordan and the maw of the cave, and you can see the huge scale of that cave. Now, Christian teachers pass around a story that the people of Jesus' day called this opening the gates of hell, the gates of Hades specifically. But I cannot find any evidence for this outside of non-academic Christian sources. It makes a good story for why Jesus chose this setting for what he does next, but I honestly think it's a total myth. The truth is that this cave was seen as a holy place by the ancients and over the years they built various temple structures here you can see the remains in this picture and in the face of the cliff they carved niches and inscriptions to various deities and they fill the niches with statues you know this is not, to my mind, a gates of hell sort of treatment by the ancients, quite the opposite. In fact, one of the major temples in this area was to Caesar Augustus, who had given the area to Herod the Great in the first place. So on top of that, during Jesus' lifetime, Herod's son, Herod Philip, made Caesarea Philippi his first capital. So knowing that that real significance of Caesarea Philippi to the, the people of Jesus' time is its connection to the power of Rome and the fact that the Roman Caesars viewed themselves as gods? Let's see what happens here. As Jesus and his disciples wander through the villages around Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some folks say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Other people say you're Elijah, the Elijah who has prophesied to come. And, and others say you're one of the prophets raised back to life. And Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Silence. <laughs> then Simon Peter who Jesus has nicknamed the rock, speaks up. Simon Peter, the rock, says, you are the Messiah. Now, this story is in all three synoptic gospels, and each version is characteristic of the author. In Mark, Jesus tells them to keep it a secret. Luke doesn't mention any secret. He ends the story with Simon Peter saying, you are the Messiah. But Matthew, what would we expect from Matthew? Matthew is the one who ties absolutely everything to prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. And he goes to great lengths to demonstrate Jesus' pedigree as the son of David, son of God, the Messiah. So what does Matthew add here? In Matthew's version, Jesus says to Simon Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. So given Matthew's predilection to draw in the threads from the Hebrew Bible, I think Matthew is talking about literal Jonah and the whale Jonah, right? Lots of scholars would disagree. Um, Some scholars believe Jesus uses Aramaic here. Um, Jonah is the Aramaic abbreviation of the name John. And we know that Simon Peter's father is actually named John, not Jonah. But, you know, I disagree. It, It was only a few verses earlier that Matthew has Jesus telling the Pharisees that they will not get any sign except the sign of Jonah, as in the belly of the whale Jonah. I think Jesus calls Peter the son of Jonah in the sense of a spiritual heritage. Think about it. What was the miracle of Jonah? We tend to get stuck on him being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, but that's not the important miracle in Jonah's story. The important miracle in Jonah's story is that the pagan Ninevites listened to Jonah and believed. That point is emphasized in both Matthew and Luke's versions of Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees just a few verses ago. So if Simon is the son of Jonah in the sense that he is listening and has believed, let's see what Jesus says next. Jesus continues, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. You are the rock, and on this rock I will build my assembly. The word assembly is often translated as church in our Bibles, but there was no such thing as a Christian church at this point. The Greek word used here, ekklesia, means assembly or group of people called out, people called forth. It is beautiful imagery that echoes the calling of Israel out of slavery. Jesus continues, and the gates of Hades, which is the Greek word for Sheol, that old Hebrew place of the dead that's just a graveyard, it's not good, it's not bad will not overpower my assembly, my people who are called forth. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus calls us out of death and nothingness and into life. God is our rock and Jesus is our foundation. Peter, the disciple, the apostle, is the first of many rocks. Then Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Traditionally, the early church saw this as a direct promise to Peter personally. And when the church split between Catholics and Protestants and other streams of Christianity, it is the Catholics who claimed this as their Christian heritage. Jesus says, whatever you imprison on earth will be imprisoned in heaven. And whatever you let loose on earth will be let loose in heaven I wish we could spend an hour unpacking this. I think we intuitively know that our words have power to harm or to heal. Jesus has specifically given this power to his disciples. What we do on earth matters. There is significance beyond what we can see. So that was a packed lesson, and we left a little bit undone. There was a Pairing in the chiasm that we left for our breakout groups to work with. Let's see what insights we can glean.
1: So where did this conversation take you?
2: It kept taking us back to the center of the chiasm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So important.
0: Yeah, talk to me about
2: it. The clean and unclean, I mean, obviously the deaf mute being um, a Gentile and with a disability would have been traditionally considered unclean. Right. The Either one of those would have made him
0: unclean, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. right?
2: The disciples presumably would have been considered clean. They were Jews. Um, so there's that. And then the but the. Deaf mute believed in his heart, and that's what allowed him to be healed. whereas the disciples were completely overwhelmed by seeing Jesus walk on water, and they couldn't understand it, and they freaked out isn't
0: that interesting isn't that interesting that that in the second in the these these are paired stories, so we're looking for contrast between them, where they're different because of what happened in the middle. But isn't it interesting that in that second story, all the people were just bringing this guy to Jesus because all the people believed, you know, that Jesus mm-hmm. could heal him, right? And the disciples who had been following Jesus, they living with him, sleeping and eating and walking. And you know how you talk when you're walking along with somebody, It, you know, that's the best way to become really close friends the disciples are so, they just seem so clueless in, in, in the stories. Do you think yeah.
3: a part of that could be related to the fact that, um, in a way, because they felt they knew him so well and they had seen him, you know, on the good days and the bad days, it was hard for them to think of him as anything other than a man and a teacher
0: very interesting
2: point. What
3: do y'all think?
2: But haven't well, they also seen him perform miracles?
3: They had, but the kind of miracles that he did just for them, like the walking on the water and still and, and silencing a storm, they might have thought that that was something beyond him. You know, they. I know that, that I have read, I should say, not, I know, but... I have read that there were other miracle workers Mm. around at that time, even some who supposedly raised the dead. There definitely were. We're going to run across them in the new Testament. And so they, they, um, the disciples might've thought he was one of these other miracle workers, but the walking on the water and the, the silencing the storm, that was like at a whole new level.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and they just kind of shut
4: down, didn't they, when those happened? I also think that possibly part of the reason why the disciples had a hard time where the Gentiles didn't is because the disciples were taught in a Jewish tradition. They were taught what to expect, what, you know, how this is going to unfold. It's not working that way. Where the Gentile, because they weren't raised in that Jewish tradition, and really didn't have a whole, any preconceived notion of who Jesus was. It was easier for them to believe than it was for the disciples to believe. Excellent
2: point. And somebody from Jesus' hometown, forget it.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. I and wonder if there's a little family.
5: I heard. Like I, but- I think about. Um, yeah, I think about whenever, like, when I'm surrounded by people that I love. Unfortunately, when it comes to family, oftentimes we remember the the worst things before we remember the good things. So, if they were in this intimate relationship with Jesus for now several weeks, months, years, they're almost taking for granted the miracles where people from the outside are only seeing this wonderful miracle signs. Well, the disciples are probably remember all the crappy times they've had. And so it clouds <laughs> the perspective. Cause I mean, I, I can't imagine that it was always roses and miracles and happy times. Like there was probably a lot of fear and insecurity as they worry naturally of how they're going to be fed, where they're going to be st- Where are they going to sleep? How are they going to make it? You know, that that probably was at the forefront before the miracles.
3: Mm -hmm. Plus the whole controversy about the eating my flesh and drinking my blood thing that rattled a lot of people.
4: Right. Mm -hmm.
0: And that just happened.
4: Yeah. And I also think that the, the, like Woody said, people saw Jesus grow up. It must have been extremely difficult for them to figure out what was going on. right? Because, you know, he he was a little kid that ran around with my kids, you know, the other kids and, you know, what makes him special. Yeah. Why is he different than these kids? Yeah. Yeah. And if you start from the premise that he's not special,
0: then you've got to look at everything he does with utter suspicion, Right. Right.
1: And
4: especially if you're expecting something different. This person doesn't match up with anything they were expecting. Yeah. So that's also got to be something in the back of their minds. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Uh, your, your expectations uh, have a profound impact.
0: Oh, on, yeah. On what you believe. I remember as a very young professional, when I was like in my early 30s, um, I attended a conference um, and the, it was about change, you know, and what, how our expectations colored that. And the, um, they showed a clip of, uh, of, of uh, and told us we should write down anything we saw that was wrong or different right. or anything. And they just started flipping through a pack of playing cards, flashing them up on the screen. and, Nothing looked wrong. It was fine. Then they went through very slowly. Still nothing wrong. Finally, they pointed out to us that there was a red three of clubs in there. Yeah. Never saw it.
1: Never saw it.
0: And, you know, Renee, I'm I'm just wondering also... Their expectation as Jews was that the Messiah was going to fix everything. Mm-hmm. The, the Messiah's gonna fix all the problems, Messiah's gonna, you know, make Israel a nation and stomp all the enemies, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and Jesus like isn't making any moves towards that. Jesus keeps saying he's gonna fill their needs and make them whole and heal them and that's just like not on that is what the Messiah is supposed to do, but that's not the important part as far as that as they may be concerned.
6: Well, Gail, if we would do as he instructed us, those things would happen. You know, if we would love one another, if we would take care of one another, if we would put our God first. And not our Christianity first, our God, those things would happen. But we're so busy missing the mark all the time, in the even in the name of trying to do it.
3: Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems to me that, that um, that's, I think, when Peter had that aha moment. I think that's why Jesus got so excited is, is that you finally get it. You know, yes, Mm -hmm. I am the Messiah and you've set aside your, your expectations of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And you see the truth in front of you. And that must have been a profound moment of realization for Peter. Whenever was it, he came to that so that he could say it out loud in front of the others.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. You know, Peter's a leader among the others, obviously because of the prominence in the story and because of his personality, he's like me. He always jumps in first. And, um, (laughs) and, and, And I'm just, I, in that story, I I almost feel like Peter is saying you are the Messiah, despite all of his expectations, right? Mm -hmm. He's like completely stepping out in faith and saying, I know you don't look like it. I know it doesn't feel like it. You keep telling us you're going to die, you know, whatever, but. You are the Messiah. You are.
1: That had to make a big difference for the disciples, huh? Yep. And Gail, on your third question,
0: Mm -hmm. we had a consensus.
1: Okay. So that
0: question was, think about the physical relationship or proximity between Jesus and the characters in the two stories. How was how did the chiasm flip or change that? What was your consensus? We all felt like the chiasm
6: confirmed the message. Okay, because, talk to me. Oh, I can't go much deeper than that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was so much we talked about. <laughs>
2: Help her out, somebody. Well, it, the with with the deaf mute, the physical proximity was very close. I mean, Jesus was actually touching him. Um, the walking on the water, the disciples were in the were in a boat by themselves, and Jesus was not with them, so he was separate from them. Um, now, <laughs> um, how does the chiasm flip that? Um,
0: I don't know. Well, I think that I that, that by, by actually looking at those two things, that is how the chiasm flips it. So in other words, the first story is very distant. Jesus is physically distant from the disciples and the disciples are all clumped together by themselves. And Jesus comes towards them. And depending on how you translate it, he's either hoping to get there, not, not sure he's going to get there, or he's like intentionally just going to walk on by, you know, <laughs> depends on how you translate it, but it's a very distant, right? Um, mm-hmm. Then comes the statement that it doesn't matter who you are or how you were born. It matters what's in your heart. And what changes is in the last story, Jesus is a, So, I mean, I can't imagine much more intimacy than somebody spitting and putting their fingers on your tongue, you know, that's about as intimate as you can get in public, you know, Mm -hmm. right. And so that being made clean based on what's in your heart is what brought Jesus flat, absolutely up and personal as opposed mm-hmm. to be distant, it's, it's almost to me as if Jesus, the chiasm is saying all the expectations and the rules and the, you know, all of this has separated us from God. Mm-hmm. We, we, we lost the plot, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. We lost the storyline because we just got all tangled up in the, in the trees. We lost the forest. But Jesus says, forget the trees. What matters is what's in your heart. Forget the rules. What matters is what's in your heart. And all of a sudden, bam, Jesus is immediate and close.
1: We see that today, too,
3: in a lot of church dogma, um, that there are certain things you have to do. In order to Mm -hmm. have God look at you and to be able to enter into relationship, you have to, I mean, in some cases, you have to say these words. Mm -hmm. I like to refer to them as the magical incantation. Um, (laughs) And and that seems to me to be the same thing as what the Jews were doing, laying up these, these conditions that man has made up. As conditions that to have God see you and love you and accept you rather than what's in your heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we haven't all learned the lesson yet. Mm -hmm. We seem to keep missing the
0: plot even today. And I kind of think that it's safer. It feels safer to us to have a distant God it it's it's interesting to me that you know from the disciples point of view the beginning part you know they think they're seeing a ghost god is very remote there's no sense of them praying in their fear you know none of that (laughs) it it, it's Mm -hmm. like they're they're struggling with this rowing all by themselves all night long they're striving they're striving they're striving it's a story of personal strife And their God is very distant and um, is a very top-down God, uh, authoritarian. That's what rules say to me. Laws are Mm -hmm. very top-down, aren't they? And Mm -hmm. after the middle of the chiasm, what has changed is that it's bottom-up. It is a grassroots effort to get this man healed. The people surge to Jesus with this man. No rules in their way. It's coming from the bottom
4: up. And he must have been to that community, a very important person. For all these people to care, right? Mm-hmm. You no, know, it seems like he was well-loved. So he's probably a very kind, a very caring person. So that's why they want Jesus to heal him is so because he's such a you know, kind person. Because he matters to them. Because he matters to them.
2: How would they have found
0: out about him in this Gentile community? Well, Jesus had been actually in this exact region just a few weeks earlier um, when he healed a man that had a legion of demons in him and The demons wanted to said, oh, don't send us to the abyss. Let us go into the pigs. And like a thousand pigs ran off a cliff. So they remember Jesus. Okay.
3: (laughs) But at that time, wasn't he driven out? Yeah, they were like,
1: please don't come back. You're
3: ruining our trade. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) We need the pigs. (laughs) (laughs) So they are in, they are, but Jesus has come back into that same territory, and that's when the people bring this man to him.
1: So, so what Renee's
3: question, um, or Renee's comment about the the deaf mute must have been a kind person for them to bring, would they have not looked upon him as unclean
0: or? No, because these by are demons? Gentiles. These are not Jews. It's, it's gent-
3: Okay, that's what I wanted to make sure of, that it was. It was the Jewish tradition of yes, they're yes. unclean or whatever. Okay, yes. Again, the rules.
6: Yeah. You know, I've always felt like it was all people. You know, with any affliction, were just throwaways. You know, mm-hmm. people that society did not take care of. Mm -hmm. so it would have been just
0: the jews no i think that that seems to be a human condition that we tend to other anybody who is not just like us um but i do think it supports renee's observation that this particular man mattered in some way to this community
1: Yeah, I don't
0: like... think I, I certainly don't want to vilify the Jews in any way. They're just regular people. They're doing their best. God told them all these rules they're trying to follow them. It's it's not like they're bad people or it's their fault. It's just that Jesus is is like saying God wants to be close. God the whole point of these rules was not to move you farther from God, but to move you closer.
5: Well, if because... the walking Our story was first also that last line on that one says they land, they land the boat and Jesus heals everyone who comes to him, even if they only touch his cloak. So if that was the precursor, I'm going to grab anybody with any type of affliction possible that I, you know, I mean, it's kind of, I wonder if the town suddenly it was like this imminent, it's our last chance to get anybody with any type of issue. I mean, if he's healing everyone. And you don't even have to do anything. You literally just have to touch him and you're healed. I'd be grabbing anyone and everyone with any type of issue. Like, come on. (laughs) So he may have been very special, but he also may have been just someone who they were like, oh my gosh, you know, grab your people and let's go touch him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of backwards, how it. You know fits. that's a
0: detail that I hadn't really thought about either, um, because what the people were trying to touch was his outer garment—the one that we talked about being a, a that that prayer shawl, that special garment that that they wore that had the blue tass- the tassels with the blue thread in them, which the Gentiles would have had no clue about necessarily, you know. The Gentiles weren't going for the cloak. The Gentiles were going for Jesus.
1: You know, I missed the whole part in that passage about the people bring Jesus a deaf mute.
6: So that's really um, illuminating to me that it's the
0: people. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just tons of depth in all of this. Um, and in the one that we left kind of half done that I, I I said, you know, we didn't have time to, to go over. And that's all that the chiasm does for you is it just says, wait a minute, stop and look at these two stories in dialogue with each other. There's more here than meets the eye and that it's worth talking and stopping. Donna says, how does that lesson relate
1: to us today?
5: Well, I, I kind of see it the opposite way of when people read this in scripture, that's why a lot of this radical, um, legalistic believers are up in arms trying to save everyone. You know, if we compare it to how everybody, when they realized Jesus was healing and you didn't have to do anything, then it's almost like. I, I have a little bit more empathy hearing the story of why there are still so many radical legalistic Christians because they're still in that mindset of, well, Jesus can heal you of anything. So here's what I'm going to share with you because mm-hmm. that's the least I can do for you to be whole.
0: But
2: those are the same people who tend to say, I think, you got to follow the rules.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: And, the, and it that seems is- like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are still among people. That they've never that that viewpoint that the Sadducees and the Pharisees had is a, kind of the same viewpoint that a lot of the radical. Part of. People is still there, it's still something you fall into.
3: And I don't know that it's necessarily just in the the radical um, parts of Christianity. if you look across i mean most of the churches I have been connected to, and I've been connected to a lot of different denominations, and all of them have some set of things that identifies you as a part of that branch of Christianity um, that is sort of, well, if, if you're going to call yourself a blah, 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 then this is what you need to do. It seems like we still do that.
0: I think
2: that can that be, is like a human be very con- comforting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It can be very comforting okay. to have a rigid set of rules it, and it avoids any ambiguity.
4: Mm-hmm. As long as you check, you know it's like you make a to-do list. You know it. It's it's good when you check things off. You feel good.
0: Well, but you can it's, also shift responsibility to the rule rather than keeping it within the relationship. Mm-hmm. That's where that's where it goes awry. You know. Rules can be very helpful, <laughs> actually, <it's> really <laughs> helpful to drive on the right one side of the road or the other, you know, um, but but um, when we're talking about God, it's so easy, I think, for all of us, us, me, yes. to, to actually think that um, I know some certain things about god or about how we should be and then that becomes part of what i give to other people and i think that i'm um that i've got something to offer and it is good not to forget that there are going to be in every room other people who can offer
1: more i, I
2: don't think it's one part uh, of Christianity. I'm going to have to go back to work.
0: Bye, Winnie. Bye. I be in back. I'll
2: see you next week. Okay. See you next
0: Bye-bye. week. So Donna, Donna has, has some, has yeah, has some great um, questions. She said, you know, that that one of the things that happens is people say if you don't, if you're, if you ask, you know, if you pray for healing and you don't get healed, then you know, obviously you didn't believe enough. Mm
1: -hmm. What do we do with that? I think that
6: you're saved. You believe in God. You're not necessarily going to be healed of an affliction, but you're going to find in your search to be closer to God and and to live as he commanded us, I think you're going to find peace that helps you to deal with your situation. I don't think you're going to get a physical healing automatically. Your finances won't necessarily fall right into place. You've got to take the the, the steps to make that happen. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. I think, I think also this goes back to um, what, what you have said in earlier lessons, Scale and also what I learned in my disability theology class at my church was that there is a difference between curing and healing and that God can heal
0: us even if we're not cured. Yes. And that, and that God is in the business of making us perfect. Which means making us whole, which is healing us in every possible way, doesn't mean we're not going to ever die. It doesn't mean we're not going to ever get sick. It doesn't mean that when we have cancer, the cancer will go away. And that I just, obviously, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean later, Jesus later, what we understand is that it means we come to a place of peace that we have, whether it makes no
1: sense at all. The
0: peace that makes no sense. Great questions and great discussion. It sounds like we are good for the day and we will see you next (laughs) week. Have a wonderful Easter weekend. Tomorrow tomorrow is Good Friday. Lots to think about, especially with that whole Jonah story that keeps popping up. So (laughs) I love you. And I'll talk to you next Thursday. Bye-bye. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.